sunshine on this beautiful Lord's Day. It is good to see all of your sunshining faces. Well, before I get into the sermon, I want to thank DJ, Pastor Jim, for doing the intro. problem, John? My mic is not on. All right. Let's see if I can fix that. Can you hear me now? All right. Apologies. I hooked it to my waist and I forgot to turn it on. That is my fault. I got nobody to blame for that. But I am going to talk about Dawn anyway. Today is Dawn Wakeman's birthday. Yes, I got a special request from Sarah, his lovely bride, to make sure and embarrass him by announcing that this morning. And uh, <laughs> so there is that. <laughs> well, as you see, this scripture up here that I want everybody to keep in mind is absolutely important for us to remember. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You may wonder how that works. Well, you're going to see a demonstration of it today in today's sermon. And... Uh, so, before we get going too far, I want to recap last week's message. Last week's message, would you say last, me last week's message was kind of intense? It was. Seriously important stuff. It's hard for me to, well, it's hard for me to stay calm and smooth and cool when I'm preaching about such things, because I'm a little excitable. <clears throat> but I try not to scare you away. I really, um, I'm not dangerous. My wife will tell you I'm way more bark than bite. So, <clears throat> but I would like to recap last week's message nonetheless. And so, here we go. The title of today's message, as you can see, is What Are We To Do? You're not going to see that in the recap, but you will in the sermon. So let's go through this recap. It's not all the verses from last week, but it's enough to get you oriented so that we have some flow here. From Acts chapter 2, verses 22 on, Men of Israel, this is the Apostle Peter speaking, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Bold, man, that's bold. In the same crowd that, was, that crucified Jesus. Wow, that's, that's bold. Next verse. But God raised him from the dead and put an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Then we jump to verse 32. It is this Jesus 
whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses, all of those who are present at that time, at least the 120 that was in the upper room, and I suspect some of the audience members as well. So he says in verse 33, Therefore, since he has been exalted at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he, capital H, Jesus, has poured out this which you both see and hear, which we saw the speaking of tongues, the foreign languages, fluently, by Galileans who could not possibly have known those foreign languages. This was supernatural and foretold by Old Testament prophets. And in fact, this was a sign that the Messianic era had in fact begun. To the very people who had rejected the Messiah. So, it's quite a response coming up here. Verse 34, he says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, that's Jehovah to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Those who crucified Jesus couldn't possibly be more enemies of Jesus if they tried. But you know, Scripture says that he loved us while we were yet his enemies. So we too were his enemies. Okay. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, Peter has just finished <laughs> making a very dramatic, very pointed, very well-reasoned, laid out from Old Testament scriptures, from reason, from logic. He has accused this crowd and said, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I believe that Jesus prophesied to the P disciple Peter about this sermon that the apostle Peter just delivered and the response we are about to study. So I want to turn to where I believe that happened. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. He said to them, of course Jesus speaking, but who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. In the Greek, Petra, little stone, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Do you understand the power of that statement? I hope that you are grasping the power of that statement. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, and you have been baptized into this body of believers, into his church, the gates of hell, will not overpower you in this place, in this body. 
will not overpower you. Okay. <clears throat> Hold on. Let me not get ahead of myself. Turn in my notes so I'm on, on track. Folks, the scriptures we are studying today are describing Christ building his church. You understand that? He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. We're watching this happen in the first century in the scriptures we are studying today. Now, since ancient times, and let me turn to that now, this is Peter quoting the prophet Isaiah. You remember the prophet Isaiah? Probably, maybe, the biggest prophet uh, book, prophetic book in the Old Testament. He uh, said many times that he described the Messiah, the coming Messiah, as the cornerstone, the cornerstone. And Peter is quoting him in 1 Peter 2, 6, the very Peter that is preaching the sermon we're looking at, we've just looked at, and the results of which we'll look at today. For this is contained in Scripture, Peter said, Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you believe in Christ, if you are a genuine follower of Christ, you will not be put to shame. So we are, uh, I want you to know that, and this is from uh, gutquestions.org, a site that I've plugged more than a few times, and so did Pastor Ron quite a few times in the 34 years he was up here. <clears throat> Since ancient times, builders have used cornerstones in their construction projects. A cornerstone is the principal stone usually placed at the corner of an edifice or a structure to guide the workers in their course. And this is what you need to know about the cornerstone. The cornerstone was usually one of the largest, most solid, and most carefully constructed of any in the edifice or the structure. The Bible describes Jesus as the cornerstone that his church would be built upon. He is foundational. Once the cornerstone was set in these con ancient construction projects, it became the basis for determining every single measurement in the remaining construction. Everything was aligned to it. The orientation of the building, where, where it was facing, the, everything was measured off of it. Not only from its uh, length and width, but height and everything else was all measured off the cornerstone. <clears throat> now, to build on this point, I want you to know that the Apostle Paul, later on in his letter to the Ephesians, also addressed this in this scripture, Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So that you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Did you know that you are part of the structure of this holy temple? You are if you are a follower and believer of Jesus Christ and you are a member of a body of believers such as here at Shiloh Chapel. Okay? Membership has its privileges. Membership has its privileges. <clears throat> so, now for the response to Peter's bold proclamation. 
undoubtedly the longest intro I have ever done, and maybe the longest intro ever done here at Shiloh. I don't know. I haven't been here long enough to know. All that, I, as the comedians like to say, I told you all that so I could tell you this. <laughs> now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? The Greek word here was also, could also be translated to stab, giving us a picture of a sudden and painful wound. And they were suddenly aware of the extreme severity and unlikely consequences of their sin. They had killed the Messiah. You know, God's sovereignty is brought up in that scripture where God predestined all of this to happen. It was part of his plan before the foundation of the world, scripture says. But that does not absolve us from the decisions we make. Scripture holds intention. In God's mind, it must be that one does not contradict the other. We make our decisions, but God is still sovereign. You understand? Does that boggle your mind how God can be sovereign and in control of everything, yet we still somehow, inside this sovereignty, have choices to make? Grasping God's sovereignty is not fatalism. It is not que sera, sera. It is not, well, it's already chiseled in stone. There's nothing I can do about it. That's not what it is. And if any of you ever think that that is what it is, let me tell you here and now, as boldly as Peter did, you are wrong. Stop it. I can tell you that there was a brief period of time in my Christian walk that I had that fatalist view. And I can tell you it's a poison pill. And it will suck the life right out of you. So get rid of it if any of you have that thought. It is possible within this magnificent God creator that we have, within his sovereignty, for you to make your decisions freely, and you cannot, under any circumstances, upset his sovereign plan. Under any circumstances, no matter what you do. He has foreknown absolutely every single moment of your life. He knows it all. So, let me get back to this. The Greek word, stab, is a painful wound. So the, this word also denotes significant emotional distress. They have suddenly been made aware of their sinful condition. The conviction Conviction comes first, you know, Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 for you note takers, you check it out. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, speaks of how conviction is the very first step in bringing Israel to salvation. And it's happening right here. There's so much prophecy, Old Testament prophecy taking place here. So let me read the tail end of verse 37 to you again. Brothers, what are we to do? That's the question before us today. First, we need to understand what these folks needed to do. Before you understand what Scripture is saying, you have to understand what the original author meant to be saying to the original audience. And then from there, once you understand that interpretation, then you can begin to understand 
the application toward us as modern saints. So, ladies and gentlemen, the question is, what is Jesus telling us to do? Sovereign God is the one who is controlling by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the three and a half years of teaching under the Lord God Jesus Christ himself, the Apostle Peter, through this teaching. The question is, what are we supposed to do? Well, Peter's preaching had obviously been effective. The people were pierced to the heart. They had this awful realization of their sin. They had rejected their Messiah. The people stood convicted of their sin and desperate for salvation. That stabbing, you'll notice and recognize this verse again, will you not? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is alive. While you are reading it, it is reading you. If you want your life to change for the better, to become more like Jesus, there is nothing, nothing, let me state that one more time for emphasis, nothing you can do more profoundly powerful in having God change the way you are than getting to know the Word of God. And we'll get on to that in the next step. You know, when uh, football players would come to Vince Lombardi in their very first season, way back when, famed football coach Vince Lombardi, he began every practice of these very talented recruits that had come. They, They knew the game, but you know how he started out the first practice? He held up a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Seems a little funny, maybe. But you see, every good coach knows the importance of making sure that his people know the fundamentals. Coach Wooden, a very famous basketball coach, for those of us of a certain age, spent the first session of the first practice of the season with these very talented basketball players that had come from all over the nation. And what did he do in the very first session? He taught them how to put on their socks and their basketball shoes or sneakers properly so that they wouldn't develop blisters while they were running up and down the court, while they were involved in these deep and serious intensive practices, which were much more intensive, by the way, than an actual game, so that they would be physically fit. You see, the fundamentals are important. If you don't get the fundamentals right, you're going to have a really, really tough time in getting the rest of it right. And what we are looking at today is called by brainier types, who do not include me, by the way, ecclesiology, ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, And what we're looking at is the formation of the early church. The study of the church, or the doctrine of the church, it is also called. Well, we're going to cover some fundamentals today. We're not going greatly in depth, so take a breath, okay? I'm not going to go super deep on this stuff today, but I am covering them 
essentially the way Peter covers them here. All right? So, let's get to this. Verse 38. <clears throat> Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a whole lot to uncover in here. First of all, what you want to know is what is repentance? Do you know what repentance is? Well, first what I'm going to tell you is what repentance isn't. Repentance isn't feeling sorry. Repentance isn't feeling sad. <clears throat> repentance isn't even saying I'm sorry. There are lots of people who say they're sorry and don't change their behavior one little iota. Judas, the great betrayer of Jesus, was very, very sorry, so much so, he threw the money back at the priest to whom he got the money from for selling Jesus out, and then he went and hung himself. Contrast that with Peter, who just preached this powerful sermon. He was restored because he repented. His behavior changed. He stopped denying Jesus the very thing he had to repent from. He changed his mind. He decided that saving his own bacon was not worth denying his Lord and his Savior. He figured that out. He was greatly sorry. But repentance is turning it around. Repentance is a change of heart and mind which is then followed by a change of direction. You understand? Think of the U-turn. That's repentance. So when you say, I'm sorry, that is not repentance. That is a statement of intent. Or it is a deception for the person who has no intention of changing their ways, but simply getting by for a little while. Okay, that's the difference. When your sinful spiritual condition is revealed to you by God's Word and the Holy Spirit, you must repent. In other words, you must turn away from your sinful thinking, sinful speaking, sinful living toward the crucified and risen Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully, folks. You don't get your life together and then come to Jesus. You understand me? You don't get your life together. Well, I'll get my act together and then I'll start going to church. No, no. If anybody tells you that, you let them know this. When you turn to Jesus you are automatically turning away from your sin. Come to Jesus. You've heard of that come to Jesus talk. It is, here's the hard facts. This is what you're facing. Okay? You're facing an eternity of punishment if you don't have Jesus. Come to Jesus. All right. I move on. Being baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay? I want you to put yourself, this is one of those situational things. There are some Christians out there who believe that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. That is not the, what all of Scripture has to say, okay? When you take something out of context from the whole of Scripture like this, you can misunderstand this, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The baptism is an outward symbol of the inward repentance. It is the repentance that brings you salvation. It, the repentance is you turning away from your sin and you turning to Jesus. That is what brings you salvation. 
That's what brings you the forgiveness of your sins. The baptism is the outward symbol of that. Furthermore, the, what, going back to what I was talking about with this society, these Jews are the ones that he's preaching to, the Jewish nation, the Jewish religious establishment, and all of its adherents, the people who follow Judaism. Mind you, the crowd he is speaking to has come from all over the Mediterranean world. Jews from every nation, remember we talked about that in the previous sermon. They had come from all over the place. These people are serious. Some of them have traveled significant distances. They've been there maybe since the Passover. So this is a long stay. They spent tons of money. They stopped work to do this. You understand? They've taken off weeks, months off of work. Can you imagine Americans doing that today? To take months off of work to do a pilgrimage to the Holy Land? I don't know, that's a, that's a pretty tough sell, but that's what they did. Now I want you to understand that these folks were serious about their Jewish faith, okay? Well, this baptism in the name of Jesus for whom the Jewish faith had just crucified because they rejected their Messiah is asking them to do something huge. you have any idea how huge it is? like standing on a street corner in Baghdad and saying, come to Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Okay, it's a little bit like that. So they're literally risking rejection from all of the society in which they are in. They could lose their businesses, their employment. They could lose everything. So doing this is bold. Why does Peter do this? <laughs> there's no fake converts here. There's no secret saints in this crowd. If you're going to get on board, you're going to do it right here at the temple where we are, where we've got all of these baptismal locations that you can walk through. And this is now a very, very public statement. That's what baptism is, you understand. It is a public statement of you being a believer and follower in Jesus Christ. Making it public. You know what that means? You're held accountable, in a manner of speaking, to every single person who's seen you make this move. So it better be real, or you're going to be shown as a real hypocrite in, in short order if your life has not changed beyond that point. Now, do we all change instantly? No. That is a growth process. That's called sanctification. Another subject for another day. But nonetheless being baptized, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift, you understand, means that it's free. It's a free gift. We, you've heard people talk about receiving the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's free. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We owed a debt we couldn't pay, and Jesus paid it for us. You understand? You're accepting that. Well, the gift of the Holy Spirit comes when you've accepted that gift of Christ paying the sin debt for us, okay? At the same time, it means it's completely unmerited. That's what that word means, that it is a gift, okay? So let's move on. Verse 39, for the promise is for you 
and your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Well, I'll get to that, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, in just a moment. But what is this about for you and your children and all who are far away? It doesn't mean that if your parents are Christians that you are a Christian, okay? You do not inherit salvation from your parents. That is a personal decision you have to make for yourself. So you children, you boys and girls in the crowd, you are not a Christian just because your parents are Christians. You must make that decision on your own. Okay? If God is calling you to himself, and that is the next part of it here, you need to heed that call. You have that responsibility. If he is calling you, you need to heed that call and come to Jesus. And that speaks of his sovereignty. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I've covered it before. God calls people to Christ. The Father calls people to Christ. If you are getting that call, I strongly suggest you pay attention. I strongly suggest it. Because the alternative, well, let's just say it ain't good. That's the depth of my theological knowledge. Ain't good. No, so that's a bad thing. Ain't All right. Verse 40. Let me move it along. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on urging them. Okay. Here's what you want to understand here. Peter's sermon went on. This was this crowd was so moved by what he had said up to verse 36, through up and through verse 36, that they interrupted the sermon and they were crying out. Have you ever had that sense of conviction of your need for a Savior? They did, and that's what you're seeing here. This is the result. So, what does Jesus want us to do in all this? Well, I haven't been hitting those questions all along. Originally, I thought I was going to keep doing that, make this an eight-point sermon, I realized that's going to be pretty obnoxious, Stan. You better leave that alone. But I want you to think as you're going through here, what does Jesus want you to do? What are we supposed to do? Us. Me. You. What are we supposed to do? Well, he says, be saved. And what? Be saved from this perverse generation. Folks, he was speaking of a different kind of perversity in that generation, but I think it is absolutely crystal clear and undeniable that we too are living in a perverse generation. And he is saying, come out from them. Come out. You can't be one of them and be saved. They were denying the Messiah. Judaism and, its, and all of the power it exerted were denying the Messiah. Had denied the Messiah unto death. You, if you deny the Messiah, you are part of a perverse generation then. And if you are denying the Messiah by failing to acknowledge him as Lord, your Lord, your master, and following him, giving him ownership over you, over the way you think, Remember, repentance is a change of mind followed by a change of action. Remember that? Remember that? Repentance is what? 
a change of mind followed by a change of action. All right? So then, those who had received his word, what is his word? The Bible is his word. Peter is preaching from the Old Testament, the only Bible they had at that time. Those who had received his word were baptized. Again, what is baptism? Well, I already told you that. I won't recount that. But in this particular case, once you become saved, your first public act of obedience and identification with Christ is baptism. In those days, baptism was also becoming a member. Remember I talked about becoming a member of the church. This is membership. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls that day. That day. Okay. I would love to have 3,000 people come to Christ here at Shiloh on any given decade. There it happened in a day. This is the move of the Holy Spirit, folks. This is the power that we have in us now as followers and believers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ, learners of Jesus Christ. So, 3,000. Wow. Wow. All right, let me not get bogged down too much, but I want you to know that the fact that this precise number is recorded... Any thoughts as to why this number is recorded? Any thoughts why this number is recorded? Because they're keeping membership roles. It's about membership. Membership. This isn't, well, I have the card in my wallet. Okay. I have a card in my wallet. There's a couple of people here, a few people, a couple of them aren't here today, who have just recently filled out applications to become members here at Shiloh. Praise the Lord. We're going to vote on them probably in June, I think. All right? In the meantime, I want you to understand what membership is. I'm not going to get too deep into it today, but it is making a commitment. And the church is supposed to keep a record. Okay? Membership comes with its privileges, but it also comes with responsibilities. I move on. Verse 42 they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay? This verse is often referred to by certain people around the world, whether Christians or otherwise, as the four pillars of Christianity, the four pillars of Christ's church. Teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, okay? Teaching. You know, the apostles' teachings, that's the New Testament, folks. The New Testament is the apostles' teaching. It is the, re the written record of sermons and letters that came from the apostles. Even Dr. Luke, when he is Giving his, writing his gospel, is taking a record of what the apostles and what Jesus in the gospel and the apostles were teaching and doing in the book of Acts that we're in now. And in fact, 
these letters and these sermons we now have as the New Testament, not only did Jesus use these apostles, these stones of the foundation of the church, as well as the prophets in the Old Testament, stones of the foundation, but he's using the teachings of those prophets and of those New Testament apostles, first century apostles, to do what? To build his church, right? He said he's building his church. Well, you know that when we're studying the New Testament, the apostles' teachings, that those teachings, those letters are still building the church here today at Shiloh. If we spend time in the letters, the writings of the New Testament, we are being built up individually and personally by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, and by being filled up with that, the church itself is being built up. So, the teaching. Let me break for just a minute to the next slide. What did Jesus have to say about this? In John 8, verse 31, read it with me if you will. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Notice the if. The if. What is a disciple? It is a learner and a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are not in the Word of God, you are not learning the Word of God. If you are not in the Word of God, you are not doing as Jesus has commanded. You cannot be following Jesus Christ. You are not following Jesus Christ. Now let me point the finger at me. I am not following Jesus Christ if I am not in the Word. That's how important it is. The first of the four pillars. Okay. Everyone, whoops, let me back it up. Getting myself messed up here. All right, fellowship. Another evidence of new life was the desire for new believers to be with the people of God and share things in common with them. Do you like getting together with your fellow believers here at Shiloh? I do. I mean, it's one of the greatest pleasures of my life. I came here to Shiloh a few years ago, having no idea why I was coming. The Lord kept putting dreams in this big, fat, bald noggin of mine about Shiloh. It made no sense to me whatsoever. I didn't get it. I'd always heard, don't go to the church close to you, go to the church... (laughs) I went to another church for 25 years. And little did I know that this is where I belonged. I didn't understand that. Now, I did belong for all those 25 years over at that other church in Brunswick. I should be pointing in that direction somewhere. I did belong there. I grew up there spiritually. In a manner of speaking, your current pastor was built in that place. Okay? So, don't knock it. But the Lord called me here, and I love you people. The Lord has put a genuine love in my heart for you folks. And it's us folks, because I'm one of you now. You understand? We are a community. We are the extended family of God. 
And that's what this is really the heart of what this is about. We are a community surrounded, surrounding Jesus and his teachings and the love. That's fellowship, folks. It's not just hanging out. We can go hang out with a bunch of people anywhere we want to. This is hanging out around Jesus. This is about Christ-like relationships with people, making Christ-like friendships with people, genuinely loving people, getting to know people, getting so that we care for each other, so that we do for each other. That's what fellowship is. One of the biggest complaints in the bigger churches, and that's not our problem, our bigness, and you know what? Maybe we ought not to be so sorry about that. Because I know that one of the biggest complaints of people in bigger churches is we don't really know each other. I remember faces, but not names. I, I kind of sort of know that person when I see them, but I don't really know them. Folks in a church this size, we can genuinely get to know each other. That is our advantage. I know it's common for us to think that this, because this is a small, just a tiny little church, We have a powerful advantage over these gigantic churches. And there are a few of them not that far from us. Take advantage of that wonderful opportunity, please. Fellowship. Okay, I'm running long, so I better wrap it up here. I apologize, got a little caught up. All right, I will wrap it up. Let's beat it up, Stan. The breaking of bread. Here it is speaking essentially of the Lord's Supper, okay? In contrast to verse 46, which is speaking about, you know, after church, we're going to go over to prayer and praise and we're going to break some bread over there. Or after prayer and praise, uh, a few of us may go to a restaurant together or somebody's house and, and have meals day to day. All right? Prayers. Prayers. <sighs> Calm down. Let me get focused. Was the fourth principal practice of the early church. And expressed, it expressed complete dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ for worship, guidance, preservation. They really needed it in those days. And service. And you know what? We're going to need it too. A time of persecution is coming. Is coming. Is already partially here now. I've lost jobs as a result of being a Christian. I essentially got blackballed by certain segments of the voiceover industry because they looked at my Facebook stuff and saw that they didn't want to do business with me because I was putting too much of that Jesus stuff up there. All right? I haven't said that around to a whole lot of people because I don't want to make you think, ooh, poor me. Okay? But it's true. If you don't think that's happening, (laughs) you are deceived. Okay. Moving along, let's wrap it up. Here we go. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. This is reverence. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Who were doing the wonders and signs? Say it with me. The apostles. Everybody wasn't doing it. The apostles were doing it. Sometimes people get a little mixed up about that. But it was the apostles that were doing the signs and wonders. Why is it saying wonders and signs? Well, 
There's a distinction. Wonders were miracles, which excited, gave, caused wonder and excitement, and in fact was probably, hopefully, bringing in people who were not yet in the fellowship. Okay? And signs were miracles designed to convey instruction. Signs always point you to something. They always in, in, inform you of something very particular. So that's what was going on. A miracle could be both a wonder and a sign as well. Verse 44, and all the believers were together. What does Jesus want us to do here? Huh? Be together. And had all things in common. All things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Okay. There are folks who look at this passage and say, Christian socialism, the Bible says we should have socialism and communism. Okay, let me just hit this real quick and then move on. The distinct difference between this and socialism and communism is socialism and communism takes it from you by force and doesn't give you a choice. This was a matter of choice. This was done voluntarily. Number two, the situation at hand. People had traveled from great long distances and they need help if they're going to stay there and become part of this new movement following Jesus Christ. They don't have the money. So it was common, actually, in, in the Jewish society then to house these people in their homes because there weren't enough, let's call them hotel rooms. That isn't what they called them in those days. But there were not enough rooms available otherwise to house all these folks. So it was a cultural thing, a religious thing, to have hospitality, show hospitality, but because these folks wanted to stick around and be part of this ongoing movement that God is calling them into, as there was need, it says, to the extent that anyone had need, people would sell possessions in order to feed, clothe, and house these pilgrims. That's what it is. It wasn't socialism. It wasn't communism. The church does not in any way, shape, or form speak to that. It does speak to our generosity not holding our possessions as anything as being something more powerful than showing love that which you do to the least of these Jesus said you've done unto me all right i really am moving it on verse 46 day by day continuing with one mind in the temple they're still worshiping in the temple <laughs> They can still consider it. In fact, at this time, as you'll see, and breaking bread from house to house, that's what I was talking about, the eating meals together, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And if you do that over at uh, a, one of the local restaurants, it, it works too. It doesn't have to be at somebody's house. So they were praising God what are we doing here today when we sing and worship? We are praising God. That's what Jesus wants us to do, praising God. And they were having favor with all the people. At that time, persecution had not fully developed. Okay, The Lord had given them favor in the eyes of those who would come to Jesus and become followers of Jesus. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord, who was doing it? The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. All right? The Lord's doing it. 
Now, mind you, he was not adding to their number those who were not being saved. Okay? The church is not for non-believers. The church is for believers. In fact, Jesus rebuked a church in the book of Revelations for taking in non-believers. We want non-believers to come and look and see if they want to be part of this. We want non-believers to become believers and become part of our family. But this body and the church is not for non-believers. It's for us. This is a community of followers of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. All right. Now I close. This time I really mean it. Someone once said, and this is a quote from Edward Bulwer-Lytton, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. He said, nothing is so contagious as enthusiasm. It moves stones and it charms brutes. And the final quote, and I will close from Earl Nightingale, said, Enthusiasm is from the word entheos, meaning God within. We have the Holy Spirit within. We should be enthusiastic about that. Entheos, God within. And he, continuing the quote, enthusiastic, exuberant people, rare as they are, are the ones who make the difference. End quote. Are you enthusiastic? Do you have entheos? Do you make a difference? Oh, I just got stabbed. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this place of worship. We thank you for everything that you pour out for us day by day. And Father, we pray that you would be adding to our numbers here at Shiloh, those who are being saved day by day. Father, we ask for this blessing. I ask, Father, that you would equip, that you would empower, that you would enthuse your people to realize, to recognize the need all they have to do is be enthusiastic about their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Enthusiastic about the Word of God. Enthusiastic about prayer. Enthusiastic about fellowship with their other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ here at Shiloh. And enthusiastic about sharing the good news. I pray that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.